Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Khreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan, special correspondent for Vanity Fair, co-host of this podcast. I have two extraordinary journalists on this week, Vanity Fair writers who we uh, like to helicopter into worlds that we're not ordinarily accustomed to being in, either the new right, the dissident right, the Trumpist right. There's all these different genres and subgenres, and we're all learning about them or annotating them like butterflies pinned to the wall. We're trying to figure out why they're, what they're doing, why they flap their wings the way they do, and whether we're going to have a civil war. And so Jeff Charlotte, author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Perfect. Uh, he's built all his reporting on articles he's done for Vanity Fair. You should Google them and look them up. Uh, they are alarming, emotional, intense. They're like the fallout of January 6th. You can really learn about what it looks like on the ground uh, with the people who were there, who wanted to be there, who are sympathetic to those people. And then this week, we're talking to James Pogue. Uh, maybe you've read some of his stories. He goes inside the new right, the intellectual underpinnings and the different kinds of people following that movement. It is a movement. It's the thing that's happening. And then there's the dissident fringe, the dissident right. That's what we're learning about in Inside the Dissident Fringe, where the new right meets the far left and everyone's bracing for the apocalypse. I'm scared, <laughs> frankly. Um, so, guys, hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, Joe. Yeah, that was just a lot of drum roll to make you guys seem a little scary. Um, James, uh, I've read your story, and uh, you're uh, corresponding with us on this podcast from uh, Story, Wyoming. And Jeff, you're coming to us from Vermont. Um, you know, a lot of what uh, you guys write about, the characters all have a very similar thing that, that connects them. They uh, talk about globalists. You know, they're very alarmed about globalists. What are globalists? They mean Jews. They just don't know that they mean it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, so this, this gets to 
this gets to like where, you know, Jeff and I are going to have a lot to talk about, right? Because like there is a version of this that is exactly that, right? And like, I will tell you that I spent the last week with some very committed anti-globalists. And, you know, this was interesting because some of these people were kind of like racist in a way that I like sort of, you sort of think of as like a mid-century sort of archetype, like, like really elite, proudly racists who like went to really elite colleges and stuff and like really, really do understand their version of politics and their version of resisting this order as a kind of like racial identity battle. Right. Um, and that's like very much a part of this whole thing. Um, and before we get off this podcast, we should talk about sort of the fringe of what people call Baptists or like the bronze age pervert followers, because that's kind of the, I don't know how to put it, but it's this funny thing of like, this funny thing of like inculcating young men into a really intense sort of like racialized, masculinized uh, understanding of, you know, th- this heading of anti-globalism, right? Um, there's also, you could say, a version of understanding quote unquote globalism that is the thing that I descended from like as a kid going to anti-globalization pro- protests, you know, and like doing that, you know, from the left. Uh, there is a version of it that, tracks in many significant ways to like what leftists have traditionally called neoliberalism. And so like in these spheres, like in this sphere, like literally that I'm surrounded in like this week, uh, you have a range of views that are like, go from like literally like stuff that my dad like thought, you know, as a sort of like leftist Christian social worker, like working in inner cities in the seventies to like just the wildest stuff on earth. Um, and I guess that's what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Jeff? I, I mean, uh, I've been to those same anti-globalist protests. And I, I mean, I, I, I sort of came of age of those. I remember back in the day when NAFTA was being formed and that was the apocalypse. And it was right. I mean, there's no, there's no contemporary fascism without before it NAFTA, without before it the, you know, the Battle of Seattle. Um, you know, that was a famous, uh, younger listeners won't know, when Teamsters and Turtles, environmentalists and labor unions teamed up to fight against this kind of, this genuine, what globalist used to mean. But the reality is the right has taken that term. as so, they, The right has taken so much language, and the left, frankly, has let them take it. They've taken globalism, they've taken free speech, they've remade those terms into right-wing terms. And with it, uh, I mean... When, when you hear someone talk about globalist, if the word Soros appears in the same language, they're talking the old, old language of anti-Semitism. And the reason I say they don't, may not know it, they may be Jews. Um, uh, but these stories are old. They're as old as the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? This idea that there is a secret elite. There's not a secret elite. There's a very visible elite. And the folks who are talking about the right about this doesn't really want to deal with the visible elite, the visible sort of structures of corporate capital. Um, so they appeal instead to this kind of this ideal of secrecy and it's more exciting. It's more dramatic, but James this is sort of my question for you actually, uh, cause I just read your amazing new piece in vanity fair and, and, and everyone listening, you know, if you're not reading what James is doing, you're not knowing what's going on. And I've been saying this for a long time 
since your last piece, James, I'm sort of saying like, this is going to blow your mind. And I'm saying this to folks who have followed the right for decades, because what you're doing is sort of looking at, I, I've got a term, a term I want to, I want to run by you, um, new right, whatever we want to call them. They're the glam right is what they are. <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe glam is too old itself, but these beautiful people who you are going into rooms with and are saying the most vile things um, and framing it in the context of this opposition to globalism, like Rod Dreher, who you write about. Um, I'm ashamed to say I published Rod Dreher long ago um, before he had made his full journey. James, like what is going on with, because these are the new elites, but they're based on saying that they're against the elites. Well, yeah, I think that, I think there's a degree to which that is true. I think that um, the governing thing of like the dissident, right, honestly, is like that a lot of people in it just think that it's cool. Like in the scenes, in the parties and stuff like that, it's not, it's hard to explain because not everyone is right wing, right? There's a lot of people who are just like really into having conversations in ways that you can't, they feel like you can't have in liberal spaces, right? Um, and there's a degree to which that is true. Uh, and so like when you are, especially in like tech world stuff, like there's a version of it that there are people who like really will actually call themselves right wing. There's a version of it where people are really like attached to the whole dissident thing and like feel like they are a, an emerging counter elite, like to you know, essentially change the structure of how global society is ordered. There's also just people who are like, these are the better parties. Um, and there's people who are like, this is just, you know, like there's a lot of like models. You're, you're not wrong about the beautiful people thing. Like there's a lot of like models and, you know, with boyfriends who went to Yale who are, you know, super trad and Christian and like, you know, like, and, and you say like, oh, how do you go into these spaces? Like, you know, for me, it's not hard because it is, it's very interesting. And it's like, the conversations are very interesting. The stuff is happening. And like the thing that, you know, I personally wrestle with and like anyone doing this stuff should wrestle with is that like in these spaces, I would argue to you that it's not, the governing thing is not everybody saying vile stuff, right? It's that there's an acceptance of like the couple vile guys who are like edgelords and really into that stuff. And like nobody, you're sitting around and everybody's getting drunk and nobody's saying anything to that guy. Um, and like, I wrestle with that a lot, right? You know, and like to some degree, to some degree, like having the cloak of reporter like insulates you from the criticism of like, oh, this is a lot of fun. These are really interesting conversations. That guy's super racist. Like, I don't have to do anything because I'm a reporter, right? And like, that's something I think about at night. And let me back up here for one second. Uh, we've, we dove right into the pool. <laughs> and uh, I just want to back up a minute and uh, read a paragraph from your article, James, so that people get a little more context about what we're talking about. We're talking about the West. We're talking about people going out to Montana and Wyoming and buying up property and developing philosophies about the world they've left behind in which they naturally are uh, not just dissident right, but correct. And they have a worldview and they're having good parties with models. Sounds good to me. I mean, you know, if I was 25 and was loaded, sounds like a good time. And you get to be self-righteous, and it's great. So the quote, you know, you talk about the quiet currents swirling around younger conservative circles these days. Wealthy and well-connected preppers, people who are preparing for the apocalypse or something like it. And back to the landers 
have been moving west, many of them at least tangentially involved in the edgy online realm of thought known as the distant right. Tech executives and crypto investors are creating secretive groups to help people exit, quote unquote, a term that has taken on almost mystical significance in some circles recently from our liberal society tech-dominated lives, and fraying system. And there are grander plans for whole secessionist movements, asterisk Marjorie Taylor Greene, using crypto and decentralized autonomous organizations to build whole mini-societies. So, continue, James, with this, but, like, these are people who uh, are obviously smart, well-educated, and they enjoy the provocative new stance that they can now have of being not liberal. Well, so when I said earlier, like a counter elite, like I think a good thing for people to understand, like going into this, just like on a super macro level is like a kind of two stage process to the, what you could call the red pill. Um, and like I, this, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but like, I think that if you want to understand what is going on right now, take the red pill and see what it tastes like and then respond to it because it's what, you know, from their perspective, they're actually, they're establishing themselves to some degree as a counter elite, having intellectual conversations that they think people inside the liberal frame are too sort of like mind captured to even like participate in. Um, and so if you're going to argue against it or you're going to raise questions about it, you kind of like actually have to understand where they are coming from. And like, so that has been something that I've done and like that it's, it's like why I can do these pieces is like, I can actually go in with the mindset that I inherited again, like as growing up a leftist, like I grew up a critic of liberalism. So I can go into these spaces and listen to people critiquing liberalism and not be horrified. Um, and did so, you did you take the red pill? Uh, I know I don't use, like for that stuff. I don't use those terms. Like I don't use any of that stuff. Like for me, but like I understand it. Like I can. This stuff gets so crazy. Stay with me, listener, please. But like to like really take a red pill is to like almost like understand politics is like a sort of Marxian dialectic. Like it's like it's like the right wing version of that, right? So like to be red pilled, like in your view on abortion is not like abortion is just murder. It's like what abortion has done is like create a society where people are so divorced from their natural essence that you've created a world where like sex is free and like thus liberatory. But then even when it's liberatory, like what that actually does is make us disconnected from each other and like atomized and individualist. So it's like this whole other much larger, weirder conversation around this stuff that like, the essence of red pilling is like you are now in literally someone said to me yesterday, someone like a young, a young, you know, Ivy League educated physicist, extremely good looking, you know, like true, like elite, elite figure. Like he described red pilling as fundamentally like an act of like obtaining a higher consciousness. And then he described it in this really weird way where of like, well, what you do with the red pill is like, you have to like use it with love. Like you can't just like go and bang on the door and say like, Hey, you don't know what's going on. Right. So there's the whole, like they, they view this in certain ways as like this kind of like higher consciousness, higher understanding. Um, and they sort of like view liberals as like these sort of benighted creatures. who can't get these conversations. Um, and what like, this the, is um, yeah. in, in the last article you wrote, uh, you had a whole thing about the, um, there's a word for the kind of like media political 
industrial complex ha- creates a kind of like, um, you know, fabulous. Uh, right. And so that's that's what Curtis Yarvin. What was calls it called? Did you say? Yeah, Curtis Yarvin calls that the cathedral, where it's like this right. self-reinforcing cycle of liberalism is dominant within the media and therefore you get rewarded by saying liberal stuff and thus you keep like sort of repeating like and you, the incentive structure just starts to build on itself um the thing that i'm starting to come around to that is a little bit that i've been thinking about i'm reading the new um patrick denine book and so patrick denine like he's kind of like he's kind of like red pill for boomers and like his first book um why liberalism failed is like a great read um I won't say his name, but there's a United States senator, Democratic United States senator, who I suggested it to and wrote back. And he was like, this is amazing. And, you know, Barack Obama praised it and stuff. So this isn't it's not like total craziness. Right. Um, But the next Deneen book is called Regime Change. And that's where you start to realize, like, oh, we're playing for keeps here. Um, Like you're taking that red pill orientation and you're trying to build, as he describes in the book, he says, you're trying to take the new right as a basis for resetting literally the governing regime of the United States. And he's, I haven't got to the end, but one suspects that he's offering a roadmap for that. Uh, And what's interesting about that is that here, this is a Notre Dame professor, you know, and like a well-regarded political scientist who is essentially offering a similar roadmap to the exact thing that Curtis Yarvin, this kind of like guy who goes by mold bug and blogged and like is crazy and totally like beyond the pale. Like it's now coming into something like a mainstream. Um, And again, you are talking about at the end of the day, like the thing that unites everybody about in this sphere is that they are willing to contemplate the end of the American empire. So you're really like playing for keeps in a way that I think you start of start to wonder if people have like sort of memed themselves into a place of political significance that they're not fully ready for. Um, and then, of course, some people really are ready for it and are dying for it. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks, and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from 3, 6, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com hive. That's mintmobile.com h-i-v-e. Cut your monthly wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, 
What is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Jeff, I want to turn this to you for a minute because it's an interesting conversation. Because in the Marjorie Taylor Greene January 6th Trumpist right, okay, who are not rich, beautiful people in many cases, they would probably, when the revolution started, be putting pitchforks in these people. Uh, they, they would not, like, align themselves with these people, you know? Like, these people are living in, like, walled, beautiful ranches, right? With uh, those big, beautiful, like, um, sheepskin coats with the big fur collars and, uh, you know, going skiing on the weekend. So how, how does any of this relate to the right-wing culture that you've investigated over the last couple of years? This is where I think about this is, is uh, and it's funny, James, I look at sort of the work we've done because in your wonderful book, Chosen Country, about um, the, what is it, the, the, the Malheur, I'm mispronouncing because I never took French. Malheur. Um, I did, but I didn't actually attend. Kind of that Clive and Bundy revolt, right? So we sort of switched places. You were doing the populist stuff, and I used to be doing the kind of the elite right, the group called The Family that does the National Prayer Breakfast. Now I'm going out and talking to just local yokels, um, and you're documenting this, this new elite right. And I think this is actually one of the fundamental misunderstandings of American liberalism, right? Which is to forget that the right wing is a social movement like any other, and it has many tributaries, right? It has an elite branch and it has a populist branch. And when you get these moments of global fascism, and which is what we're in now in countries all around the world, it's not just the United States. Um, Tunisia is now being governed according to, to great replacement theory I just learned today. This is amazing. Um, uh, Africans, they don't want black Africans coming to Tunisia, uh, is when these things converge, right? What's fascinating about what the work you do, James, I think, is that it, it documents actually for those of us, who, and I'm, I'm, I wasn't raised a left, but I'm still on the left, um, is these fault lines, right? And when I look at these folks like Patrick Deneen, Deneen is a heavyweight, but most of these folks, it's sophistry. They, they, they name check a few sort of old Greeks and they think that they're into deep waters. Um, it's false shit. Deneen, on the other hand, is the real deal. Um, and I think what Deneen is failing to understand and what I've experienced firsthand because I teach at Dartmouth College and I've been docs a number of times and when that happens, um, me and my administrator and any of my colleagues that um, folks can find online all get lots of phone calls sort of saying like the first thing we do used to be first thing we do kill all the lawyers, first thing we do is we string up the professors. Ron DeSantis is leading the charge there, right? Deneen's not going to be safe. And that's the thing that I think when we look at the Marjorie Taylor Greene, right, Deneen and these folks think they're going to lead it. They're not. They're not. And nor are the militias out there 
and the countryside, it's going to follow the same pattern that it has always, always, always followed. And I think we, um, it's not the elites, it's not the Deneens, although they're going to add a lot of fuel to that fire. And, and why, which is why, you know, James, you're almost alone along with Catherine Joyce. You're basically the two reporters who are paying any attention to these tremendously influential figures. And I, I, I can't even, I'm, I, I, you read Deneen, God bless you. I don't want to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not the malicious either. And I think what we, you know, the thing that, that I look at is that there was an op-ed in the Washington Post some months ago, three or four, I can't remember, retired generals saying, look, fracture in the military is a real prospect. And then this is something I've reported on is the fundamentalist far right in the military and the officer corps. That's where it happens. All these militias, all these Jackson Hole fascists and so on, the hipsters on the, on, in New York and so on, they don't make the war. What makes the war is a base commander in Florida or Texas, already numbers of them in semi-mutiny over COVID vaccines saying, that's it. I'm not taking orders anymore from a false president. That's the war. And I think that's what we have to look for. And the guys that you're reporting on are giving them the intellectual foundation to make them feel like, hey, I'm doing something real. I'm doing something substantive. I'm not just following, uh, following my own gut. And that's what I'm so fascinated by with your stories is, is the way that they are literally in a Leninist sense, not an artistic sense, the avant-garde. I think that's true. I think the military thing, I mean, the military thing is really interesting. Like, you know, in quote unquote dissonant spaces, like the big conversation in, about the military is not like, oh, how do we get the grunts on our side? To some degree, I, I think, to some degree, I would actually push back on that. I think that there's like, there's a kind of line between dissonant stuff and quote unquote chud stuff that is a little more direct than people think. Like, and you know, the easiest way to draw that line is Tucker Carlson. Like, like the, the Tucker Carlson show is like, to be honest, like Tucker's show is like, to some degree, like a translation for normies of dissonant right thought. Like, that's the whole point of the show. Like, just realistically. And like, one of the things that people in those spheres talk about, I'm not sure if Tucker does all the time, but like, I would be surprised if he doesn't, is just this kind of like, this kind of feeling amongst right wing America that like, they don't believe in the project of America anymore. And that that is reflected in declining recruitment numbers. Um, and so, like, you know, one of the more, like, identitarian aspects of the dissonant right is this kind of uh, analysis of the American military of it being, and I don't know the numbers on this. I'm not. I'm just translating what they say because I don't know if this is true. But the, um, the idea that the American military, like, basically is represented by a warrior class of largely Scots-Irish people who really believe God, faith, and country. It's and fucking it, false. It's 100% fucking false. And, 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 and you know, that goes back to um, the Democrat, the right-wing Democrat who wrote the book on the Scots-Irish. Oh, yeah, um, Jim Webb. Yeah, yeah Jim Webb. And, and Webb loves this crap. And it's an old, old story. This is what I mean by the sophistry of this new right. They're doing like crap history, crap philosophy, crap theology. But, it, but they're name-checking big names and they're name-checking history, theology, philosophy. So they feel like they're in this rich place that they've never been in before. And they went to Ivy League school, so they think they're smart. I mean, these are the fuckers that I teach sometimes. I've God bless my students. Oh, now it's going to get me in trouble. 
but the students who don't want to do the work, but they feel like they're by the brand of Yale or Harvard or Dartmouth license them. This is the Josh Hollies of the world. Josh Hawley is a shit scholar. He's a bad scholar. You know, that's what I'm saying. And this is what's going on with Curtis Yarvin. Curtis Yarvin is a bad scholar, but if you've never been around real scholarship, it blows your mind. It blows your mind. And this is what's happening to so many of these new right folks. They're like, oh, I'm an elite. I encountered this shit. Oh, it's so deep. And it's not. And like the Scots-Irish thing. No, the military, the military right now is not Scots-Irish. I'm Scots-Irish. I'm not in the military anymore. My ancestors were, right? But I'm not. Um, and well, so, but what's funny about, what's funny about you saying that actually is that, so the best, like by far the best doesn't it right podcast is this thing, good old boys, uh, that is done by these two anonymous, um, two anonymous, like Southern dudes who are like super, super nerdy, like crazy historically literate, um, and really just like fascinating to listen to because they seem really dumb. Um, but and then they like come out with this stuff where they're like, well, actually, like when Ataturk did this and you're like, wait, what's going on here? How do you know that? Um, but so good old boys, the good old boys are obsessed with Jim Webb. Like that, that's like their homie. They love him. Um, <laughs> and the reason I was going to say that about the military, right, is that there is there's a question right now. Like there's a sort of governing question in global life, which is like was this whole liberal project, was this whole like global cosmopolitan project like a very good thing that like raised, you know, like decreased infant mortality, gave us awesome tech, like brought living standards to untold new heights, like kind of, you know, ended war, all this stuff, like Thomas Friedman stuff. Or like, did this give us like this kind of like empty core that we all kind of like somehow don't like that much and we're all like, our brains are ruled by money and iPhones and it's all empty and worthless. And like, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle or something like, but you've created this narrative on the right, especially. And it's weird that it's just the right, because again, this used to be the left. You've created this narrative on the right that like they, you're right. Like they've kind of like figured it out and they figured it out in a way that like nobody else has. And they're, they're the critics of it. And the problem now I think is that like that conversation, uh, again, like a high level democratic politician emailed me this today. It was like, fundamentally, the, the kind of conversation about global politics now and the crisis that America is facing is like, what do we do with liberalism? Like, do we, do we go through a project of convincing everybody that actually it rules and it was good? Or do we try to build something new? And what is that new thing? And like, for very strange reasons, like the right, or it's not even like, often not even just the right, but it's like people in this distant sphere who are often like, claim not even to be right wing. Like there's this feeling that only in that scene are we the people like actually thinking about what that new thing is. Um, And I say that all about the military because like the question is like for them, they're like, so what do we do with the empire? Like, do we, can we get people to like believe and sign up and hoorah America? Hell yeah, we're going to do this. Like really, really get into Ukraine, defend Ukraine at all costs. Um, Or like, are we facing right now the moment where it breaks? And like the hence- but this guy saying, what do we do with the empire? They're saying like, uh, do we? What do we? You know, maybe maybe the empire cracks up in Ukraine, right? What are they talking about the empire in Congo? What are they talking about the empire in Uganda? What are they talking about the empire in Honduras? I mean, they're not doing the work. They're not doing the work, which is to say that the empire Ukraine is not actually the front line of the empire. 
it's the thing that, yes, the New York Times reports on for all kinds of reasons. Right. Um, uh, it's not even the fucking biggest war on the planet, right? That's in Ethiopia. And I don't know, I, I haven't followed it. Maybe Yemen is second, Ukraine is maybe third. So we have this kind of, this justification. So it's a little bit like they're discovering, they're discovering for the first time this stuff that folks on the left have known. And the left has seeded this. I, I, this is a complete failure of the left, right? But the fault line where they default, where they become into fascism, um, I mean, earlier in the show, I was gonna say, like, you don't have any of this without NAFTA, without the this battle for Seattle. I was also gonna say, you don't have any of this without um, Occupy Wall Street, mm. which I adored and reported on, but also, you know, I, the line's always been blurry. I was there. A number of those folks, as you probably know, have turned into folks on the new right. And whether they call themselves the new right and whether they claim the name dissident, you're not a dissident if you're not challenging power. And so this is where I'm pushing back on you. And I wish we were doing this in Story, Wyoming or here in <laughs> Vermont uh, over drinks so that it wouldn't seem as like as much as I'm pushing on you, because I really want everyone to read James's work, which I think is absolutely some of the most essential stuff. But like when you use their language, and I've been respectful of this always, like use the language people use for themselves. They call themselves the dissident right. Where are they actually in dissent? Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's something I wrestle with a lot, and it's something I. I mean, in interviews, including like on the earlier interview uh, that I did with Joe here, like I talk about that a lot. You know, like like David Graeber was a friend of mine. Speaking of Occupy Wall Street, and David Graeber, yeah. for people who don't know. Um, you know, he was an anarchist, left-wing critic of globalism, critic of power, critic of, you know, all of this stuff. And above all, a critic of liberalism. Um, Graeber was a critic of the idea that we are in a state of capital-driven forward progress and that it's, everything is always getting better and better, right? Um, and interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, actually here in story, um, there's a copy of David's new book, um, that all the, all the guys were passing around, which I thought was really cool. Right. Um, and so like, in Wait, terms these, these, these new hipster, whatever they are, guys are reading Graeber. Yeah. Graeber's huge in this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, as is, as is, and I'm going to throw a plug for the greatest, my favorite living thinker, uh, James C. Scott, um, another anarchist, um, philosopher and critic of the state, um, or critic of state formation. I mean, we'll get, we're all talking. What, what, titles, should, stuff. what titles should we read by James C. Scott? Uh, seeing like a state is great. Um, seeing like a state is, I think like probably his fam most famous one. Another one is, um, another one is, uh, against the grain, which is a history of, it's a history of state formation, but like described as sort of using, uh, wheat and grain as a, kind of mechanism for understanding how early states were formed. Um, and it does go to show that the formative influences in these spheres are not just like the greatest hits of the right, right? Um, and the reason for that would be that these are people who regard like the grand sweep of American conservatism in general. And like Deneen talks about this a lot, is American conservatism is fundamentally too in these spheres, like often regarded as just another wing of liberalism. Right. Um, and so they're going to have more in common with some of those leftist thinkers uh, than they would with William F. Buckley or something. Right. Or like the people at the NRO who they hate. Um, with that said, like, yeah, I think somebody quoted me. I don't even know where I said this. I saw this pop up on the Internet. 
recently where it's like the, the understanding of elite in these spheres is not based on money. It's based on cultural power. And, you know, to some degree that framing like absolves the most elite people in the world of the title elite. Right. And that, that's like a, because they have the money, but they think they don't have the cultural power. How Red Scare thinks they don't have the cultural power. I don't know how Peter Thiel thinks he doesn't have the cultural power. I don't know. I don't think, I don't think Thiel thinks that, I mean, I've got, I've kind of gotten, I've gotten to know Thiel a little bit and it's interesting. He's not what you would think. And I, I can't like quote any, I don't even, I don't want to blow up his spot. Right. But like, I think, I think it would be Burn okay. your bridges, man. Every yeah, story man. should end with like a long list of people who will never speak to you again. I know. And you, you know, I think about that. I think about that with my journalism is like, basically that never happened to me. Um, and I don't, I think about that in the dark of night. Like, why is that true? Um, you know, the, what's the famous, is it, who said um, journalism should be selling someone out? Joan Didion. Um, yeah, Janet Malcolm. <laughs> no, that was Joan Didion. Journalists are always selling people out. Janet Malcolm says every journalist who is not too full of shit, whatever, she said it better, um, knows that she's run, they're running a confidence game. Maybe you're not done, James. Maybe you're just, maybe you're just working up to it. You know, you, you're, you're setting up the, setting it's up gonna the dominoes, huge. baby. It's going to be huge. I mean, this is the thing. I'm, I'm interested in the fact that, that like Peter Thiel will still talk to you after the last story, because I saw that as devastating, right? I saw that as this is, this is the backhand I've been waiting for. This is the person who is just not, not some like liberal or like knee jerk left. He's just sort of saying, Peter Thiel's a jerk. No shit. He's a jerk. How is he a jerk? That's what your work does. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. The frames of reference now and like the frames of understanding are so far away that like people can see the same words and come away with radically different takes of my stuff. And that is what has happened is like, I, I just like, I don't, I don't believe in down the middle. I'm not an idiot, but like, there's a version of just like letting people do their thing and avoiding, basically avoiding commentary. And the frames of reference are so far away from each other now that like people on the right read both of these pieces and loved them. And people on the left read both of these pieces and were like, you have exposed the loot, the lurking fascism. Like, and it, and it's just like, I'm in between going, well, actually, I just, I'm not sure. I wasn't doing either of those projects. So it was just sort of, and what, what project were you doing? What project were you doing? 
Like, like, what do you understand your story is doing? Let's, let's stick to the news story because that's what this podcast is about, yeah. right? So the, the news story, um, which is a more sympathetic group of people by any standard, right? I mean, look, downtown hipsters are never going to be sympathetic. Um, this is sort of this group of people who are thinking hard about how to live the good life. Like in the same way that Rod Dreher, who you talk about in the story as this guy who was sort of the the originator of this idea of crunchy conservatism, sort of environmental conservatism. And there's a lot that, that any lefty or liberal would find sympathetic about what he thinks uh, until you come to what he thinks about Jews and queer folks and trans folks and the folks he is willing now, as he wasn't at one point, to put in the guillotine, right? But not all these people are there. And they may not ever get there, right? So, like, what is the project describing these folks who are on these sort of various places on the spectrum with relation to a guillotine? Well, I think my personal project is, is like, it, it's a somewhat not left or right project at this point. Um, it is that I think that something really bad has happened with runaway capital. And I think that, like, we have entered a phase, like, I care a lot about nature and I, that is the governing impulse of my life is like to work on environmental issues. And I think that like the ideology, the ideology of unchecked growth as a positive thing is something that like cannot continue. And I'm interested in engaging with people who like share that view. Um, and so like, there is a part of me that is very sympathetic to uh, both a Dreyer, but, uh, but, but an idea that a politics oriented against what people in this sphere like describe as the machine uh, is a politics that I, you know, just like innately, internally have always been sympathetic to. And so like part of the point of doing this piece was that I was interested in a set of people who were concerned about that stuff. Um, and then you can get into this kind of other thing of, you know, the machine is a, is a term that was popularized by this guy, Paul Kingsnorth, who, you know, a lot of leftists like find absolutely repugnant because I think Kingsnorth and I'm not an expert on his thoughts, so I'm, I'm, I'm speculating now. But like, well, well let, let, let me detour you from Northridge because another guy that you actually name check in the story is Edward Abbey. And, and again, like, I'd love to be there with you or have you here to be like talking about Edward Abbey and talking about the weird, complicated politics of Edward Abbey. And I will bring in a name just for you that we don't have to talk about as Charles Bowden um, that you probably know. Yeah. Um, like in the story, you talk about Edward Abbey, who is the um, sort of, if people have ever heard of the term of uh, monkey wrench gang or this kind of radical environmentalism, that was Edward Abbey. And I mean, he was the guy who said like, look, Earth First and like Elf and all those kinds of radical environmental groups, some of which it seems in your story have morphed rightwards, not those groups, but other people are drawing from them. They're drawing from Abbey. And they're drawing from what also Abby had, which was, I mean, this broke my heart when I was older and, and understood it. He had a deeply racist, xenophobic kind of thing. He understood that the border is complicated. It is. It is. Like lots of people moving over because of capitalism is fucking things up. Um, it is. He turned that into, if not a hatred, a predisposition that it seems like some of the folks you're talking about are willing to flirt with because they think it's sexy to be transgressive. Absolutely. And, and so I'm, I'm glad you brought up Abby actually, because you, you anticipated exactly where I was going with talking about Paul Kingsnorth. 
where there's a realm of this stuff that is very, very, very environmentally minded and like definitely like old school, old school, like earth first stuff is like super popular. I'm in, I, I'm in a couple like. You should probably explain what, because there's like younger listeners who won't even know what earth first is. Right. So Earth First was, was, you know, kind of an early version of radical environmentalism, radical, the, sort of formed by the, the then radical idea that nature has, you know, rights, almost, almost like humans do, you know, to some degree. Um, and th- that's a much larger, weirder conversation to get into. But I, I think you're very, very much right that, like, radical environmentalism, radical ideas of, like, humans need a natural element. Humans are natural beings in tune with natural worlds. We cannot live without that. That has shifted very right. And it has um, done a lot to sort of like make environmentalism a kind of weird, like I'm stumbling over my words here because it's so confusing, but all of a sudden like local agriculture online and in Twitter spaces is very much something that sort of like reads right now. And like Climate change is often viewed as a sort of globalist. I'm writing a piece about this for the New York Times right now. It's a sort of globalist project to like pave the desert with with solar panels in a way that like a lot of older school environmentalists are like, hey, this is hurting biodiversity. This is a capitalist project and like find very repugnant. Um, And I'm deeply conflicted by that stuff because I don't necessarily like a lot of the sort of eco-modernist ideas. Uh, But then you get to, well, how do you make America a slower, calmer, more natural place? And a lot of that conversation hinges on immigration. And a lot of it hinges even when you get into like deeper spheres of this stuff, like it hinges on this thing, a term popularized by this guy, uh, Steve Saylor of human biodiversity, right? And like Steve Saylor has made a career of basically like doing stats that show you know, black people are violent and stuff like that. And like, there's that, that's a huge fear of this stuff. And like Steve Saylor is a huge hero to a lot of people in these worlds. Um, and there was a fucking racist. Right. I mean, like, yeah, I think like, I, I don't know what his argument is. I'm using the technical term, you know, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm trying to I mean, like, yeah, that, that I think that I think it's like, it gets to a point where some of these people are like, they're so, they get in such tangles to like not describe themselves as racist that it's almost like, what are you, what is going on? And then like you have people. So there's this guy who I quoted in the, or I mentioned in the piece, William Wheelwright, who like tweeted it. I had described him as unapologetically racist and he tweeted it and said, thank you for the compliment, Vanity Fair. Um, And like a lot of people in his sphere were like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. You know, and you're like, oh boy. Um, And, you know, Wheelwright, so he's, he's very, you know, exemplary of, of, of these spheres. He, uh, Super into local agriculture. I think, you know, he's anonymous, but I think he runs like a, you know, a small scale cattle farm. Um, And like, I've been in, so I, I'm in a sort of like little sphere of Twitter called the Doomer Optimist, which is like a very aggressively like not not right wing. Like it's like it, it's a thing where it's like we keep politics out of this stuff. And it's a lot of homesteaders and kind of naturalists and eco people and stuff. And like but they'll they'll swim in this water a little bit because this is where a lot of these conversations are happening. And so internally, like with the DO people, the Doomer Optimist people, like there was a big conflict because they had William Wheelwright on the pod. Uh, on the podcast that, that, you know, I have hosted. And I was like, wait, what? And I didn't know about that. But like, and then a lot of people were like, this guy's a fucking racist. 
Um, and there was a lot of internal dissension about that. And I say that because th that's very typical of these spheres and these conversations these days, where it's like all of a sudden you're like, no, oh, but these well, let me interrupt because it's spheres, because like listeners can't see this, right? But like we're three white guys. Um, I was about to say it's the the body odor in this frat house is getting a little uh, over the top. Right. Like we're, we're three white guys. I think, I don't know. Are we three straight white guys? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm a half Jew, but I'm, I'm a Jew, but uh, you know, so are we like two and a half wasp? Oh uh, yeah. I think I'm half Irish. So. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Scots Irish. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Right. So like, I mean, it's like a little bit like we're having this conversation, right. And where we can entertain, um, and I, and I know how this is going to come off. I know this is going to come off as 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 a certain kind of like, you know, check your privilege. And I always hate that kind of thing, actually, because actually our privilege, you and me, James, is what enables us to do this kind of reporting that as straight white guys or guys who can pass as straight white guys, we can go into these spaces. And and I know this, you know, working with my students, right? Some of them can't do that. They will not be allowed into these spaces. People will say things around us that they wouldn't say otherwise, right? But like, so when we talk about like, there's a lot of dissent around having a guy like Wheelwright, like I feel like um, we, we were talking about Joan Didion before, you know, slouching towards Bethlehem, you know, we're lurching rightwards. We're lurching rightwards where we can imagine a space where and I know this is not your intention, like this happened without your, your goal, but I'm fascinated by it, right? I'm fascinated by like how this works, by folks who care about wilderness, who folks who care about nature. And listeners who don't know this are always stunned by this, the fact that so many far-right figures who love organic food, like they think that liberals think that they own this shit, right? They think that they own living healthy, um, as if organic and vegetarianism is not an old part of fascism. It's part of fascism going back pre-fascism to the medical purity movements of the 19th century, which are the ancestors of anti-vaxxers, right? You have British folks in the late, uh, mid-late 19th century saying, um, you know, a pure English diet will keep you from any disease. And it's only our exposure to empire and all these terrible foods, they, they excluded tea because they really love their tea, um, that poisons you. So this has always been there, right? And I think like, it just, I felt like it was important. I'm sorry, I'm rambling because I felt like it was important like to sort of say like, we're three white guys talking about dissent around having a fucking racist on a radio show. And I guess, God help me, I will check my privilege and say, that's a privilege that we have. There are yeah. other people who are just trying to survive do not. Can I, I, I would like to just, um, you guys read Semaphore, the Ben Smith yeah, project, the news yeah. project. Try you, not don't, you don't need to, but uh, it's okay. But there's a, sometimes they have the reporters write the report and at the bottom they say, Joe's view, mm -hmm. right? They, they add, they'll let the reporter go off on their own just so you know where the bias lies, right? So I just wanted to give you my point of view, which is that... The problems they are pointing out and describing, that's useful, right? You're saying that some on the left have that same critique, we know. Yeah, we are going through this time of radical change that makes our life feel empty. Capitalism either needs to be re-engineered 
or end, right? But probably just re-engineered, let's be real, right? And uh, we, it's not like the problems are only observed by them. That's what I think is so phony about this whole thing. This like creating all this intellectual fucking claptrap around it to make it seem it's really just narcissism. It's the same reason everybody thinks there's a, an apocalypse or, and frankly, a civil war coming is because I'm so important and I have a website and a Twitter account and a, on social media. So obviously the world must end in my lifetime because I'm important. Fuck you. This is not courage to own a gun and read these fucking books. You know, fuck you. You know what's courageous? Today, I went to pick up my teenage daughter in a little fried chicken shop in the rural upstate New York where it's surrounded by rednecks and Trumpers, okay? I walk in, and there's three teenage girls in hijabs working there, okay? And they're laughing, and they're happy, and they're serving chicken. And, like, that's courage to be them, right? To forge the diversity of the future. And they're going to figure out how to fucking fix capitalism, not these fucking hacks out in fucking Montana jerking themselves. I'm, I'm sorry, but— Give me a fucking break. It's just libertarianism, and it's been there the whole time, and they're going to put some new names on it because they got to feel special and new and have a social media account. Fuck it. I, I just don't buy it. Joe's view. End of story. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you're, we're getting towards, like, the, the kind of, you know, I, like, I was talking to Default Friend, who, if, if anyone's on Twitter, she's pretty big on Twitter, and she she's been in these spaces for a long time, right? And, like, you know, she pointed out that, like, the real genesis of a lot of this stuff, like, it does come from, like, essentially racist shitposting, right? And, like, and that it started there and, like, suddenly now it's, like, this whole other realm where you have, you know, you have, like, quote-unquote dissonant right, like, Senate candidates and stuff. Um, but, like, to to get to what we were talking about before a little bit and, like, with regard to race, right? Like, like BAP, uh, Bronze Age pervert, who is kind of the masculinist, like sort of weird, fake Romanian accented guru of the the kind of like hard edge of the dissident, right? Like he's been telling people- He tans his balls? Yeah, for sure. Um, Just to, to, to reference a previous James Pogue classic. Right. Um, and I mean, well, so, uh, so like, actually, uh, this is a little digression, but like, I highly recommend if you want to understand like the, the core, core, like, you know, hard edge of the dissonant, right? Like watch the Tucker Carlson end of men documentary, um, which includes that guy, William Wheelwright, who I was just talking about. Um, cause that's the right wing bodybuilders. And like, I was with, I was with this weekend, like a BAP guy, like a openly racist, like bodybuilding 28 year old dude who's, you know, you know, is off the record, so I'm not going to name him, but I, he was, would not be bothered by being called a racist and he would not be bothered by being called a male chauvinist. Like that's their thing. Right. Um, and, but so like in the baposphere these days, like they're kind of like on this trip of like the only thing, the only thing don't talk about, don't talk about corporate power. Don't talk about, don't talk about Christianity. Don't talk about any of this stuff. Just talk about immigration. Like none of this stuff gets solved unless you solve immigration. Like that's their thing. And it's, so I say that because it's not libertarianism. This is a very different thing that these guys are envisioning. Um, and it is, you do have the feeling with some of these people, like, especially in the BAP sphere, like there's, 
these guys who are like really, really, they're like, they're built for a football team and they don't have one. And like what they have is this other thing. And it's like, they're, they're, they're like meme into these like really, really, really intense, like lockstep positions where to be like, I can't even think of what, there's some Twitter beef where it was like some, somebody came up in conversation and the BAP guy was like, oh, I hate that guy. And I was like, why? Like, what is, it seems like you would like him. And he was like, oh, cause yeah, BAP has beef with him. Beef with him. And you're like, oh, this is like kind of like fucked up revolutionary cadre stuff. Like where you're just like, like you want to, you want to have this identitarian kind of like sense of like, we're on the fucking team and we're going to take it down. And it was funny because, um, I actually, I was telling him like the piece had posed a question and I was asking him as a member of Dissident Right, like if he thought this was the question. And I was like, the piece had posed the question basically that like people in these spheres are debating, do we exit this system or overthrow it? And he was like, yes, i.e. both. Um, And I say that because there is going to be probably more like... I, I think that, I think Jeff is absolutely right about this. I think that there is going to be an emergence in American politics of like pretty explicitly racialized stuff in a way that like now, like now people, liberals essentially have been saying for a long time, like that's really what Trump is about. I think it's going to get much more explicit because I think these people are gaining power. And I think that they are to some degree, like they're not inaccurately judging themselves as like representing kind of cool something. This is Scott Adams and Dilbert. Dilbert is like, Dilbert is the avant-garde. He's like, he's like, I'm being punished. But then Elon Musk comes along and says, he's being punished because the media is anti-white. Like that, and, and like, that's going to pass as a blip. And we'll say that was a blip. But you're, yeah, I think you're right. Like it's, it's coming. That's, that's the, the, the forewarning. And I think it's going to be really, really dicey because like, for example, so for example, I was reading a stat today, like 65% of British people think that there's too much immigration in Britain. But this is Tunisia, too. This is why I was mentioning Tunisia before. Like, Tunisia, I was stunned to learn today, is like great replacement theory. And they've got populist revolts on the street. Keep black Africans out of Tunisia, right? Which is an African country. And so, like, then so uh, then you have, like, and I, I didn't quote Bannon in the piece saying this, but, like, in the interview that I did quote in the piece of Steve Bannon, he's talking to Nigel Farage. And he's talking like, we're going to unite Modi. I mean, it's, it's the same stuff, Jeff, you describe a lot. Oh, that was great. Modi yeah, and, yeah. Orban and all of us. And we're going to get on this sort of like, we're going to build a global movement, a global populist anti, anti-globalization movement. Well, we, we just got to pa- We got to pause on that and explicate that for listeners, because that was the quote that I felt like explained everything about the global fascist. And, you know, I follow Bannon too, but I'd never seen that where he just lays it so plainly. I mean, do you have it there? Can you read it to us? I don't have it, but he said, I've got guys. It's something like, I've got guys in Egypt calling me. I've got Orban. I've got Duterte. I've got, you know, he, a laundry list. I got it here. Yeah. Of, okay. Egypt, Egypt is Al-Sisi, who, you know, the fascist who killed the Arab revolution, right? Like, this is what American liberals don't understand and that they, they constantly sort of say like, oh, other folks are laughing at us. They're not laughing at us because this is happening like all fascist moments, they happen globally, right? And then you get some dumbass leftists who are like, well, China will stand in the way. What the fuck do you think? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm Joe, am I not supposed to swear? Cussing is loud and encouraged. Um, uh, uh, you know, this is a global fascist moment. And I think what we need to be aware of, 
And what we need, and, and let me throw this back to you, James, because the, the folks you're hanging out with are, are, are the right-wingers who are sort of, and I know they don't call themselves right-wingers, but I do. They're fascists. Some do. A lot of them do. Yeah. Um, are thinking about, right, is here we're in a global fascist moment. The last time we were in a global fascist moment, you had three powers, right? And now you have maybe one oppositional. Right now, the United States, maybe not, right? There's no Soviet Union. Curse the Soviet Union. Curse Stalin, a monster. But he was in opposition to that, right? Um, and DeSantis or Nikki Haley or, or my own Governor Sununu um, uh, from New Hampshire, who is already showing, he's like, oh, I'll swing, right? Yeah, I can do it. Um, or Trump, right? Like, this is a global fascist moment. And like, you're talking about Orban in Hungary, and Duterte, who is in Philippines, but has now been replaced. Duterte was like, just prelude. Because then they're just like, let's just go straight to it. And let's bring back Marcos, the monster of the Philippines, the guy who crushed the country, right? They brought him back, his son, um, Bongo Marcos. Um, do these guys know that they're in a global fascist moment? Do they see that connection? Bannon does. But do the folks you write about, do they get it? Well, I mean, certainly they don't use the word fascism. Um, no, no like, sorry. <laughs> but, but they, they, they see a low global localist movement. Like they're all crunchy con Rod Dreherites. I mean, and then I, I, as an avowed and proud localist, like, I would push back on that because I, I, I like really don't want like the valence. It's poison the word. It's not ours anymore. I don't want the valence of localism to be like right wing extremism, right? And like that is actually it's like one of the things that like I really wrestle with with describing this stuff because then it's like it's almost like it's making it's taking all the localists and it's being like okay now you're in a basket with the the with the BAP people, you know? And like that's something that I it's a distinction I try to draw, um, but but it is true. What's that, a localist? Oh, like Jeff would probably say most localists are fascists, right? But like, no, no, I, wouldn't. I live in Vermont. What are you talking about? Right, most okay, localists okay, are my yeah. neighbors. <laughs> well, you know, it's the people I buy eggs and maple syrup from. Right. Like, so th this is the funny thing, right? So localism now as used as like a political term um, is often used maybe on the right, maybe whatever, uh, to describe all the stuff that is anti-globalist, right? Um, and like, that doesn't really work that well for like a Bannon. Like I don't, I don't, Bannon is not like, Hey, let's do like local farming. Right. Like, I don't think so. I mean, maybe he likes the idea, but it's not his governing impulse. Right. Um, but like localism, localism traditionally is like you build local communities and structures outside of the wider, like chaos and, and disruption of capital. And like you insulate your community. I don't mean in a prepper sense even, but you, you build a, like a strong local community with strong local ties. And like that becomes your worldview. Uh, it can also mean like, you know, <laughs> Jeff, don't get mad at me here. I, I wrote a cover story for the American conservative uh, about JD Vance, um, like seeing JD cause I grew up in Cincinnati and seeing JD from the left uh, and to some degree criticizing him like in a way that you actually couldn't do in a liberal magazine because it was like, you know, it was the American conservative, so it actually mattered. But over the top of that, they described themselves. They were sort of like, they were sort of justifying like why this like raggedy weirdo was like on the cover. Of Wait, do they like Vance? 
Does, does American do they like Vance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, he's their hero. Because oh, he's so he's so cheesy. He's such a fraud. So for 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 people who don't know, the American conservative is like. I mean, it's it's like the. I'm trying. They've to been think. real I'm, at times. They 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 have they have they have walked the walk at times. Yeah, the American conservative, I would say, is actually a conservative magazine. Like in in the way that, like, contrary to like the neocons and hyper corporatists and 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 stuff of that is generally governing the American right, the American conservative is a magazine that actually wants to conserve things. Uh, it is like a Pat Buchanan wing of things, right? And like, uh, and so, but they. I'm all building up to, like, they described themselves, they were sort of like, James Polk is from Cincinnati, uh, and as a localist publication, the American conservative wanted somebody from Cincinnati to write about Vance. And I was sort of like, oh, like, you're using localist implicitly as an antonym for globalism. You're not using it in a local farms in Vermont sense. Um, I want to bring this back right to the beginning. They're using it, and and look, I... I, I've known a lot of American conservative writers. I've respected a lot of them. Um, I'm Scots-Irish. I'm a Jew, right? They're using it as an antonym for Jew. And they won't say it. They may not know it. They may not know it. Some of the Jews who are doing this language. But when they say that you're from Cincinnati, so you're a localist, fuck that. You're from a very big city, a bigger city than I've, I've gotten to live in, right? Um, and it's a conservative city, Cincinnati. But... Like that you're the man to represent and, and you are because you're actually a great journalist to represent J.D. Vance. And like if, if American conservatives has to do a story about him, let it be you. But um, but like let's 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 talk about the code, right? Because code is is always there. Code is there on the left, it's there on the right. And and let's think about it. It's 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 part of language. It's part of how we use language. Well, it goes back to this whole idea of the um, Federal Reserve, you know, having a in the back of the dollar, and you know, all the conspiracy nuttery. Which you know, I have one of those guys like uh, in my local uh, in a store over the river that I go, and every time I'm in there, he's got a picture of Ron Paul on the wall, uh, and I get the whole story about the globalists. And um, yeah, and he probably doesn't know that he's in it. If I pull out a credit card. I'm going to get that speech. You know what I mean? Just a speech about what money really is and what you're buying into. Yeah. He calls the local strip mall the malaria, the mall area. I Let me ask you something. We We have to wind down here. This could go on for like hours. It truly could. But when you guys are out there in the field talking to your various characters. Give me a little feeling for what the reaction is when you say, I'm from Vanity Fair magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, James, you've been doing it. Tell me. Your your people actually know what Vanity Fair is. That that is true. Um, I mean, you got to understand, Joe, like the funny thing is like when when I've been reporting these pieces, like I'm living in Dunsmuir, California. It's a town of 2000 in a county run by a militia, actually. Uh, And like, but like, I mean. Wait, do you live in Shasta County where you wrote that? 
I, I, I went back to LA. I went back to LA so I could finish the book proposal. But yeah, I'm moving back up there. Like I just sold the book. Everyone buy it. Um, I don't have a subtitle yet, but it's called The Natural Division, and it's about the state of Jefferson and upheaval and stuff like this. Stuff we're talking. Oh my about. God, everybody! The state of Jefferson. I'm gonna say I'm gonna plug my book too, The Undertow. I do have a subtitle, <laughs> uh, 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 The Slow Civil War. But like I, I ran into the state of Jefferson and I couldn't understand it. And I thought, this is vital. This is vital to understand. So James is the they guy. Got a, they wave their flag around up there in Northern California. Yep. Yeah. yep. Um, so that's, I'm, I've been working on that. That's, and so like, I mean, like a lot of people in these spheres, like just, I mean, I shoot guns. I drive a lifted truck. Like I like, I, I mean, you know, and like Jeff, it's a fair point. Like, you know, it's privilege and stuff like that. But like a lot of people kind of think I'm pretty like down and like people really, people in these spheres really, really liked the new right piece. It was a really funny thing where it was like people on the left really liked it. People on the right really liked it. And so like some of these places I go and people are like, oh, this dude's super based. Um, and, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't do that. So I don't claim, but like. It, wait, it, wait, wait. Let me just say, let me, let me, James, let me help you out. Let me ask you the question directly so that you can give an answer that will maybe fuck up your sources or maybe fuck up everybody else or something like, are you super based? I mean, in the sense that like, in the sense that they use it. Yeah, I'm based because like based is like, they, they don't use it to mean right wing. They mean it to mean like, are you unafraid? Right. Like, are you that that's the, the fundamental like based thing is like that you're just not afraid to say stuff. Um, and I like to think that in that sense, I am um, like, uh, am I right wing? No, like, I, I mean, like, I'm interested in all these conversations. Am I right wing? No. Um, but like the thing, the thing that has has developed with like reporting these things is now like in so much as it is not cosplay, in so much as like the ground under our feet is shifting, in so much as we are having real conversations about, you know, the American empire and liberalism and all this stuff, like now there's kind of like a lot of my work is like a shadow game, like where I just like, I meet people and talk to them for hours and it's just like not reporting because I'm just trying to figure stuff out. And that happens both on left and right. Like with some, sometimes like with quite high level politicians and stuff. I have a lot of senators numbers in my phone now, which is really weird uh but i think people on both sides of it like kind of like respect that i enjoy the process of having people as interlocutors and like trying to figure this stuff out um and so so far it has been pretty fine actually um and again last bit but like i do often wonder why is it so fine am i doing something wrong you know and i think about that stuff a lot well i think that you're the intellectual integrity of your pursuit is clear, and I think that's probably recognized by the people that you talk to. And, um, and I respect uh, the idea that you should be in an environment where you can speak freely and test ideas. And I think, you know, a lot of people I know do that mainly in private, right? They're not, you know, because they want to be able to speak freely without having to have, uh, you know, judgment, right? Or policing of some kind. Now, the danger, and I think that a lot of these people you're talking to are succumbing to this danger, is you can get so wrapped up in the self-righteousness of like, I'm going to break free from this thing that you don't know what you're breaking free for, right? They're breaking free for what? They're to 
live some kind of like a vintage white man lifestyle from like 1955 or whatever. And that's great, you know, with, you know, with some tech bro stuff thrown on top and, and create their own country. And it, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm sure it'll be great. But, you know, meanwhile, in the rest of the world, in the rest of the country, you know, people don't, can't even afford to have these conversations. You know, they can't even, they don't, that's the privilege part. And uh, when I, and I asked about the Vanity Fair thing, I was, it was partly about that because I, I will bet that a lot of the people you speak to, James, are probably pretty psyched to be in Vanity Fair. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. The host of Good Old Boys, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. I, I just learned this because I didn't listen to the episode. Um, but I, I just heard that the host of Good Old Boys called his mom on the pod to tell her that she was in, yeah. he was in Vanity Fair. Yeah. So welcome to the cathedral, bro. Um, so, uh, listen, this has been a fantastic, wonderful conversation. You guys are, I mean, now that we've really gone through the fire like this, we're bros and that's fine, you know? And yes, it does smell like a frat house in here, but that doesn't mean we're bad. You know, we can, we can tell our truth too. Um, okay. So meet us back here next week on Inside the Hive. Uh, We've been here today with Jeff Charlotte, James Pogue, both Vanity Fair correspondents, both uh, incredibly steeped in very important reporting and a a conversation that I I have a strong feeling we will continue and we will be back on this podcast at another time talking about, right? Uh, So uh, until then. Thank you so much. Thank you. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.